My name is Daryl Ash, one of the deacons here at Fellowship Bible Church. It's my privilege today to bring God's Word to you. I'm excited. I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't afraid. We're in a series in the book of Joshua called The Lord is Salvation. Two weeks ago, we saw the Lord commission Joshua and by commanding him to be strong and courageous. We learned that the promise and power of Christ empowers us as individuals in today's world to pursue his will without fear. God often leads by directing our hearts to follow him, but interestingly enough, he rarely gives us the complete big picture from the very beginning. He calls us to be men and women of faith, trusting him and following him. And in Joshua 2, last week, we saw how God paved the way for the spies, the nation of Israel, and provided safety and deliverance for Rahab's family. And as Slate pointed out last week, God's story went ahead of the spies as they searched out the land and they heard reports from Rahab herself, a pagan who did not know God of the mighty acts of the God of the universe. Imagine their encouragement as they heard from someone who didn't know God what their God had done. They couldn't wait to get back to to Joshua and to the people of Israel and share with them, God definitely is paving our way for us. So today we come to chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, and do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then, Joshua, then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests to bear, who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and he will, without fail, drive out from you before the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord the Lord of the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as the, those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water... Now the Jordan overflows its banks through the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarethan, and those following down toward the Sea of Arabah. 
and the salt sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation had finished passing the Jordan. During part of our time overseas, we lived in Plankaraya, Indonesia, Kalimantan, on the island of Borneo. It's an island about, you know, about a little bit bigger than the size of Texas. And Plankaraya was in the southern part of this island, and it was on a huge river delta. That day, February 24th, 2006, on a flight from Tumbang Na'an to Tiang Luang will forever be etched in my mind. I departed my home base as early as I could that morning. I had a long day before me, so as soon as I could make out horizon over the trees, I launched and I headed out. This flight would stop off at Tumbang Na'an to drop off 120 gallons of fuel and five-gallon jerry cans, and then on to Tiang Luang, the 45-minute flight would take me approximately, oh, excuse me, would take me on a heading of like 020 degrees, so that's slightly north, just a little bit east of north. And my route crossed over the 8,000-foot mountains that separated the southern and the eastern ranges of Kalimantan. The clouds were scattered to broken. The occasional altering of my course was needed, so I didn't fly into the clouds. And this day, I was flying MAS flow plane, Mike Charlie Delta. I was scheduled to haul 2,000 pounds of cargo so it would have taken me five, one and a half hour round trip flights and my little 185. And by the time the day was all done, I was back at my home base. It would have been a 12 hour day. As I crossed those peaks, I looked down into the valleys. I saw that the waterways that were feeding the Mahakam looked really swollen and almost flooded. It was totally different. It was chocolate milk brown, churning with foam and debris and just waves in that water. As an experienced full-plane pilot, I made the decision, okay, I'm not going to land here. <laughs> it was pretty obvious. So I flew up and down the river trying to find a landing zone. None was to be found. It became quite clear that day I would not land, and so I turned back south. In Numbers 13 and 14, we read the account of the first spy's report, right? We know that Israel rebelled against God. They feared man, even after the countless numbers of miracles and wonders they'd observed and experienced firsthand from their time in Exodus, excuse me, in Egypt, through the exodus of Egypt, they chose to fear man and disobey God. The people of Israel listened to the bad report and ignored God's command. They ignored Moses. They ignored Joshua. They ignored, they ignored Caleb. Listen to Numbers 13. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us to the land and give it to us, the land that flows with milk and honey." Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. This rebellion led to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We all know the story, right? Anyone 20 years or older would not enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So this is one of the many reasons that God keeps reminding Joshua, and Joshua keeps reminding the people of Israel, be strong, 
be courageous, fear not, press on, follow me, obey my commands. Over and over and over again we see this. Arthur W. Pink in his book, Gleanings in Joshua, writes, it, is, it should be carefully noted that Joshua 3, like Joshua 2, opens with the word and, which not only shows the three chapters are closely connected, but also tells us we must carry in our minds what has previously engaged our attention. Joshua and the people, as they started forward on this new adventure, must be regulated entirely by the instructions which they had already received. This is also true for us, of course. We will see today that God in His love and His provision for us gives us clear instructions which we must follow. And if we are to make right application of this unforgettable historical event for ourselves, if we are to draw from it the spiritual lessons it's designed to teach us, then we need to know what was before us in those previous sections. A most daunting obstacle lay in Israel's path. The River Jordan barred their entrance into Canaan, and we are now to behold how that obstacle would be overcome. If we are to make personal and practical use of this today, that river which intercepted Israel's progress should be regarded as illustration, illustrative of as, as any problem that you or I or the believer faces today. And then determine from this passage what we must do if we are to overcome our difficulties and move forward. Joshua follows the Lord, and now Israel moves even closer to the promised land. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, that they depart Shittim, and they arrive at the Jordan River. We see that Israel's camped here for three days. Looking out over the Jordan, Scripture gives no insight as to how they occupied their time during those three days. But we do know that we don't see that Joshua has actually talked to the people during those three days. If he did, the author of Joshua, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, chose to leave those details out for us. Were they left on their own? What interaction did Joshua and the commanders have? We just don't know. Think of a time when you and I were getting ready for a trip, right? And you're thinking about all the plans that have to be made. Or perhaps you're looking, you've got something on the horizon that you know you have to do, but you're really not looking forward to doing it. Or even worse, you have no clue how you're going to do it. Doesn't that time seem to go on forever? Verse 15 in this chapter tells us that the Jordan overflows its banks in the harvest season. We believe, of course, it's the harvest season because Rahab hid the spies under flax stalks on her roof. And the Jordan River is at flood stage, and it is uh, swollen, it's swollen from a small, perhaps, you know, 100-foot-wide river, we don't really know, but a small river, fairly shallow, to something that is huge. Some scholars say a mile, some say two miles wide. At first thought, it seems strange that such an assembly should be left, settled there for this length of time without a word being spoken to them, but just a little reflection should indicate the Lord's design and shows us then some important lessons that we can learn. Contemplate this incident with me. Visualize the scene before your mind's eyes. It was not only an army of men, but a vast congregation of men and women and children and personal belongings and livestock, three million large. It wasn't like 
200 people are going to cross the river. This was massive. Three days they looked out on this obstacle, this river that blocked their passage. Whatever the breadth or depth of the Jordan is in recent centuries or even today, it is evident that it presented an impossible and seemingly impassable obstruction in Joshua's time. Yet they were left there three days to gaze on it. Now I'm speaking for myself here. We're proud and self-reliant, ignorant of the fact that our strength is weak and our human mind is infinitely finite. And even when faced with difficulties, we still seek to solve by our own wisdom, how do I get out of this tight corner I'm in? The Lord graciously resolves to humble us. The difficulties are increased, the corners become tighter and tighter, and for a season we are felt like all on our own, abandoned, just as Israel might have felt as they faced the Jordan. It's not until we properly weigh the difficulty at hand and then discover that we can do absolutely nothing in our own merit, in our own strength, or in our own wit to place something on the opposite scale that brings balance to our situation. We feel hopeless. We're brought to realize our utter helplessness. We turn to him, Christ, who alone can undertake for us and free us from our dilemma. As the text continues, we read that Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves to be set apart, to be made holy for preparation for what God will do. I'll touch base on that in just a minute. But I want to talk about an interesting phrase in the middle of this scripture. In verse 4, it says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have never passed this way before. So 2,000 cubits, roughly a half a mile. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm going to say it's about a half mile according to what I could research. So quite a ways, right? The phrase, though, never having passed this way before, what does it mean? Several scholars said, well, it's obvious they never crossed the Jordan here before. Well, duh, that is obvious. But I just don't think that really aligns with the intent of what the author of the book of Joshua wanted to get across to the reader. I think it's more appropriate and more aligned with other commentaries that said, this will be the first time since leaving Egypt that Israel would not have the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to leave them. See, when, John, when Moses passed away, that, that ended. And so now they were actually going to follow the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Well, just think about it. If you've got a group of people, three million large, how is anybody other than the first people going to see it if it's right next to the people? So it must be placed off in the distance so they can gaze upon it. They can look at it and they can remember the Lord their God. It also signifies in verses 6 through 8, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall... Cause his people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. There it is again, being careful to do all things according to the law that my Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have good success or rendered you may act wisely wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. 
And he ends with, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord Yahweh tells Joshua he will be exalted in the sight of all Israel with one purpose in mind. So that the people of Israel will know that the same God that was with Moses is now the same God that is with Joshua and that he will be with them. Joshua tells the people that God, what God is about to do, and he will prove once again that Yahweh is their provider and that he's going to provide a way across the Jordan River. The first step of many opportunities for us is to completely trust God into the unknown. Joshua is careful, though, to give God the credit and the glory for how he removes the impossible. And I believe that's a good reminder for us When God removes the impossible, we give him praise. We give him glory. It's nothing we did in our own strength. It's nothing we did in our own minds. It's nothing we did, period. It's all God. Joshua then in verse 13 says that the Jordan will be cut off and the waters flowing come down will stand in a heap. So let's just consider that for a moment, okay? I mean, that's really bizarre to think about. So at this particular season, the snows in Mount Lebanon, near which the Jordan has its rise, are melting. And as they melt, there's an annual inundation in the valley, and it just floods the entire plain. And the Jordan just goes over all of its riverbanks. So God selected the month when conditions were such that to form the most suitable background for His illustrious power to be displayed. He didn't defer the river crossing till the end of summer when it was really shallow and really narrow. He waited till it was broadest and deepest so that his hand could be plainly seen. Even in 1 Chronicles 12, 15, the author there writes that even in the time of David, the Jordan routinely overflowed all of its banks. So this this isn't a one-time event. This is typically history every year. So try to picture this if you can. The topographical data of this area where the water stood in the heap would have been maybe about 20 miles long, about two miles wide, maybe a mile to two miles wide, and about 100 to 120 feet deep. Okay, simple math says that's about 130 billion gallons of water. That's enough to fill 203,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools, and it just stood there. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. It definitely falls into the category of miracle, right? Most definitely. But I think we have to be careful. I think we have to be careful that we don't overlook something that is far more gracious, far more glorious than what has just been pointed out. Surely those words, this day I begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, should at once turn our hearts and our minds to the one who is infinitely far superior than Joshua. What God did here for his servant Joshua was a foreshadowing, a foretelling of what he would do eventually to his son Jesus Christ in that same Jordan River. No sooner was our blessed Lord baptized in the Jordan in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, than the heavens were opened up and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing upon him. And the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
Then he, Jesus, the Son of God, was made manifest to all Israel in John 1.31. Then was he authenticated for his great mission. Then did God begin to magnify his Son. Still more wonderful in my mind is we observe where this actually took place in the Jordan. John 1.8 tells us these things were done in Bethabara or Bethany, which signifies the place of passage. Gee, I wonder what passage they're talking about. So Christ was attested by his Father, the creator of the universe, the Lord God at the very place where Israel passed through the river and where Joshua was magnified. Up to this point in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, we've only read a narrative that's taken place between God and Joshua and his people. We have not yet seen God display his mighty work. They've been told what he's going to do, but they haven't experienced it yet. And as we continue reading, we take a really interesting note in my mind. <clears throat> the people see the priests carrying the ark of the Lord, and what do they do? They immediately get up, leave their tents, and follow. Just as Joshua had commanded. They stepped out in faith, completely believing that God would do as he promised through the words that Joshua told them. They had no proof it would happen other than the fact that they'd experienced multiple miracles from God the past 40 years, but they didn't know he was going to follow through on this. I mean, how many of us would actually go stand out in the middle of the river saying God's going to put in a heap, right? And so they didn't know for sure, but they trusted God. And they also remembered what they said in chapter 1. All you have commanded, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. So now is the time for steps of action and faith in our God by trusting Him as Word, not inactivity, not godlessness, not doubting, not fear. No, it's a time for action. Trust God. He will lead. I believe there's some lessons for us from the crossing of the Jordan. Three things that God just impressed on my heart this week. Well, actually, last three weeks, if I'm honest, because thankfully Slade gave me a lot of notice. So thank you, brother. He knew that I needed like a long time. First and foremost, we must sanctify ourselves. The essential elements of sanctification are simply separation from sin and not desiring to live the way the world lives. In other words, everything about me, everything about you has to be 100% for God. And I know you're automatically thinking, well, I've already failed. Well, guess what? We all fail. If we were capable of that, why would we need Jesus? It doesn't mean we live a sinless life. It means we desire to run from sin and we desire to run to God. That is what it means to sanctify yourself. When we fail, not if we fail, when we fail, we will fail we have a loving God who's waiting, willing, open arms, ready to forgive. What a wonderful truth. We must sanctify ourselves. We also must obediently follow God. He's the one who orders our actions. He's the one who plans our days. He's the one who plans my next step that I take. Now, I'll be honest with you. I fail in this miserably because I want to plan, well, my wife doesn't think I plan. I don't plan. I'm honest. I don't plan. But I want to have a plan. <laughs> I can't lie like that right in front of her. 
Don't worry, babe, it's not in there. Um, we must obediently follow God, okay? That means that I submit what I want to do to Him. And then He gets to replant it how He wants it to go. Now, I have to be honest with you, leaving Indonesia was one of those resubmission things that I still am upset with God about. It's only been 13 years, so I'm working through it. But the bottom line is, we want to give our lives to God and let Him take control and guide our steps. And then finally, we need to remain grateful. We want to praise Him for the blessed balance of our God. Think about it. The ark spoke of the law, the demands God has on us, the demands that we're not capable of keeping, the demands that prove we are utterly helpless. But He doesn't stop there. He gives us the mercy seat of His gracious provisions for us. So while the law condemns, He provides forgiveness. He provides love through our failures and through our sin. We simply must humbly confess our sins. Repent, turn away, and be thankful that we can receive the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ who paid the cost for my sin and your sin. What a glorious God we serve, church. He's complete. He's full of almighty power, and He's full of infinite wisdom. All the power and the elements of nature are even subject to Him. Nothing is too hard in your life or my life for the one who turned liquid floods into solid walls, or the one who caused the sun to stand still in time, or who made the rocks provide water to drink from, or who sent ravens to feed Elijah. Nothing is too difficult. Because that God is the same God who's alive and at work today and in my life and in your life. The God that wrote this book is still alive, people, and He's still doing mighty, wonderful things. So what's the point? I didn't even have three points, Slade. You notice I only had two? I did that just for you, brother. <laughs> God's power is displayed through our weakness. And as I thought about that this morning and you know, throughout the week, I think really what it should say is, yes, God's power is displayed through our weakness, but more realistically, God's power is displayed through our utter helplessness. Because I can believe I'm strong. I can believe I'm in control of everything. I can believe that I am in control of my life, but I'm still utterly helpless even when everything looks grand and glorious and my life seems like a dream, I'm still utterly helpless because there's nothing I can do in my power. Oftentimes, it's not until we're at the very end of our rope, right? You feel like you're hanging on by three fingers. Thankfully, whoever tied the rope left a knot in the end for you so you can hold on to something besides slipping off. And only then do we just come to realize, oh God, you're in control of all this, thank you. Church, I believe that God wants us to see Him doing miraculous things long before we're at the end of our rope. God is at work in my heart and your heart. He does not want us to become desperate or feel alone or afraid and wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? Instead, I believe that we need to see God's miraculous hand at work day in, day out. You do not have to fear that God will fail to carry you through to the end, He will always be with you. You don't have to fear loss of anything. 
because he will provide for you and he will always be with you. You don't have to fear that he's going to abandon you because God has promised us time and time again that he will be with us. He meets us right where we are. Praise him. We don't have to become holy to gain access to him. Praise him that we can come as ugly, disgusting, sinful people, and he welcomes us because he sees us through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Scripture is clear. We run to God. We embrace God. And we love him. So I have three responses. There, I got three for you. First and foremost, praise God for rescuing you. I said this earlier, but whether you believe or not you needed rescued, you did need rescued. If you're here today and you don't think you need rescued, then people, we need to talk because you do need rescued. If you've lived a life that's been fairly straightforward and easy and you've always had plenty, guess what? You still needed rescuing because the cost of not being rescued is eternal separation from God forever. So we needed rescuing. Memorize John 3, 14 through 17. Put it in your car. Put it somewhere where you look every day because then you're reminded time and time again that God is your strength. God is your provider. God does what you need, not you. That's for me personally. And then finally, share your story of praise. Share how God has rescued you with someone else, friend, coworker, family member, because God will take that story and he will encourage another believer's heart. You have no idea what that person may be going through and he takes that story, he transforms this other person's life through that story. See, that's how God works. God works in us in community. As we close, uh, I'll close in prayer. We'll have a prayer team up here. Perhaps you're going through something right now in life that just is overwhelming. You just have no idea how you're even going to get out of bed tomorrow and how you're even going to face what's in front of you. The God of Joshua, the God of the universe is here. And he has an answer. He may not give you the whole answer, but he has an answer. Perhaps you just want to come up and ask for prayer. Perhaps you want to come up here and be alone and be silent. Whatever it is, I welcome you to come up here. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you that you gave us your word so we can read about how faithful you are and how much you provide for your people and how you show us to live a life that honors you and brings you glory so that we can praise you. Lord God, as we go our week, we just pray that you would help us be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would look for opportunities to share your story with people so that their lives can be changed for eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.